Hello and welcome to the latest series of Magnified with Matt Cooper, a podcast series which allows me the opportunity to spend more time with guests than radio allows for and gives me the opportunity to probe and perhaps get to know people a little bit better and hopefully allow you the opportunity to find out about people that you either knew of but didn't know certain things about or maybe have never heard of but will find very interesting nonetheless. And so today's guest on the Magnified of Matt Cooper podcast series is someone who has been highly successful as a team player in sport, but now works in building other teams in sport and in business. He was an All-Ireland senior football winner with Armagh in 2002, but has been deeply involved with the Leinster and Irish rugby teams in recent years, particularly under Joe Schmidt's management. And he has gone into the corporate world, offering great insights to people to help them perform in best as members of teams and as individuals in organisations. I think you're going to enjoy Enda McNulty. I'm reading Commit to Lead, Unlock Your True Leadership Potential. I'm halfway through it and I love it. And I'm going to talk to you about lots of the things in it because I'm getting so many ideas and just some interesting stories out of it. But for those who aren't familiar with you, tell us who you are and what it is you do. I'm from Sleeve Gullion in South Armagh. Uh, grew up in the middle of the Troubles. Mother and father have had a profound impact on my life. My mother taught for 45 years. My daddy taught for 25 years and then became a development consultant for the International Fund for Ireland. Growing up in, uh, in South Armagh at that stage was just a fascinating upbringing. But very much in the heart of the Troubles. Right in the heart of the Troubles. So early memories would have been walking up the road to, with a Gaelic football bag on your shoulder, with British soldiers walking down the road with rifles on their shoulder. So in the middle of the Troubles, but for us that was just a fascinating upbringing. Uh, uh, uncle was a farmer. Other uncle was an entrepreneur. He made sweets and uh, developed them and sent them all over the world. Uh, and at the same time, the visitors to the house, like your kitchen table here in Rough Mines, would have been Seamus Mallon. Early memories would have been going to my grandfather's funeral and John Hume was at the funeral. And everybody was, of course, enthralled and intrigued by John Hume. Uh, so early upbringing would have been very much forged by those brilliant characters, the Mallons, the Humes, my mother, my father. And Seamus Mallon really does feature significantly in your book as well. You clearly took an awful lot from him. I learned a lot from him. Matt, his leadership, probably the first time in my life I actually knew and realised what leadership was. I speak about it in Commit to Lead that on those cavalcades for the SDLP away back in the day, I must have been 10 years of age, in the back of my father's old Reynolds 18 and he'd have the loud hailer on the top of the car and I remember vividly him saying, vote Malin for MP. Uh, and of course there was throngs of people gathered on the street corners because when Malin came, he was like a hero, a local hero at that stage. So he's had a, a really big impact on my life. And the GA obviously had an enormous impact as well. Very fortunate when, when I was a little boy that I guess surrounded by good footballers. My brother Justin was a brilliant footballer. My brother Paul was a brilliant footballer. Kieran McGinney was one of the most iconic players arguably the last 50 years. He was in my club, Mullabon. Uh, so when I was 14 years of age, I'd be you know competing against Kieran, who was 19 years of age. So you just couldn't have a better iconic player to learn from, to look up to, 
and to battle against. I can remember being in a tackling grid, uh, let's say three metres by three metres in Molaban in the dark, in the muck and gutters, four players in each corner. There's two players in the middle, me and Kieran McGinney. Uh, player A has to get the ball and deliver to the other four players and player B has to try and stop them. And as a 14 year old trying to go in and stop this ferocious powerhouse that was Kieran McGinney, it was a big baptism of fire. So again, very fortunate to meet people like that early in life. And of course, you won an All-Ireland medal in 2002 when Armagh beat Kerry in the final. You make reference to it in the book as well about the halftime. And you were four points down, I think, wasn't it, at that stage? Four points down. Morale was probably low. Body language low. Maybe belief was slightly low. Joe gave a brilliant speech, of course, about you'll regret this. Joe Kernan, your manager. Joe Kernan, the manager, gave a speech about if you if you don't do this now, you'll regret it for the rest of your lives. So the speech was amazing, but maybe more important the speech was the players, let's say, absolute commitment to what had to happen in that first 10 minutes. I remember Paul McGrain in particular talking about the tackling had to significantly improve. So we all made a commitment that we had to go right back, double down on those basics. Because... You then go forward at another stage in the book to 2011 when you were working with Leinster in the Heineken Cup final against Northampton, which was the famous hat comeback in the second half. So what was that halftime like to be in the dressing room, given that nine years earlier you'd been in the dressing room in Crow Park with Armagh? to turn around and win an All-Ireland final? I think in all those dressing rooms, again, you see the real leaders. So Johnny Sexton in that dressing room, again, Sean as a true leader. Uh, Greg Fick, the scrum coach, dead calm, laptop in hand, addressing how the scrum need to be fixed in the front row and how some small little things need to be altered. Not major things, small things. And it was as if he was having a bottle of beer here in Rough Mines. Dead calm, dead cool. Sexton gave that fiery speech, of course, about we will find a way back in this game. And in all those change rooms, the Rory Best that I speak about in the book uh, at halftime against the All Blacks in Chicago, his sense of composure, his sense of calm, his sense of real cool in what he delivered. Almost like he whispered. You'd almost, if you had a microphone in that change room, you'd say, why is he not raising his voice? Dead cool, dead calm. So again, true leadership. That's an interesting point because a lot of people, I suppose, think, and I mean, there would be the image of Paul O'Connell putting the fear of God of people that was captured in one video of the Irish team back in the, the noughties. But how often is it that, you know, in sport, and we'll get to outside of sport in a moment, but that it's really, really important to maintain composure and that you won't convince people to follow you into the second half or a game at the start of the game unless you're actually convincing without being shouting it. I think my early days as a footballer, as one of the leaders on all the teams that I played on, in my early days would have lacked composure at halftime. I would have lacked composure before the match or maybe even during the match, but I learned the hard way that nobody's going to follow you like that. If your message isn't very coherent in a Railway Cup final, uh, played in Paris, we won a Railway Cup final with Brian McAniff in Paris in the old Olympic Stadium. And I remember standing up at halftime, grabbing all the Ulster guys with Trone fellas and Derry fellas and so on and saying, we're seven points down here, but we're going to find a way to win this game. So you have to deliver that in a coherent, calm, concise manner, as you know from your broadcasting uh, expertise. So... How many of those guys would be calm and composed? Everybody has different personality profiles. Paulie, I've seen him in the change room. I've seen him sometimes being ferocious, but also with that simplicity of the message. 
So depending on the personality profiles and how the player psychs themselves up, uh, it's very much about their personality profile and their style and their preparation. You leave the player to that. You never, let's say, override that. But I think most players, as they mature, realize that if you're going to communicate a simple message, you have to calm down when you're delivering the message. You have to keep it concise. You have to make sure you have no more than three key messages because the players won't remember anything else. And you have to make sure that you win the hearts and minds before you leave that dressing rooms. Although, presumably, in the other dressing room, the coaches are trying to do the same thing with their players. I think at halftime, a lot's maybe uh, oversaid about the halftime speech or the pre-match speech. And you might say I'm contradicting what I've said in the book. I think it's all baked by then. Matt. I think, you know, to a large extent, it's all big. 99% of the preparations done long before you ever get into the arena. Wasn't it Ali that said away back in the day, it's before the bright lights, before the big crowds, before the TV cameras turn on. That's where all the work's done. So sometimes we in the media, or we when we're writing books, don't represent that enough. That's 99% of what's happened. What's happened? Well, we're going to bounce all over the place here, but it does just what comes to mind suddenly for me. And we'll stay with sport for the moment before getting into business, which a lot, which the most of your work is involved in. But it does remind me of what the Munster players said about what went wrong for them in 2000 final against Northampton and Twickenham in that they got so emotional the night before the game in the speech that they almost emptied too much of themselves and didn't have it the following day when they got onto the pitch. I think I've seen some Ireland change rooms where we've probably done that as well. I remember the the uh, the English World Cup, England and Wales World Cup. I, I think emotionally we got things slightly wrong before the quarterfinal of the World Cup against Argentina. I remember Paulie made a prolific speech the night before. He was on crutches. Big iconic guy, probably the most iconic guy in our sport, uh, gave this speech. And I think emotionally we probably got that slightly wrong. I think the timing of these big speeches are very important. That's interesting because a lot of people would have said that was simply down to the fact that five key players were missing injuries and that there weren't the right players there to actually replace them. So that's the first time I've heard anyone give a slightly different interpretation of what might have gone wrong that day. I'm very passionate about that. The only way our sport can be world leading on a consistent basis, we address the brutal facts, as Ray Dalio would speak about in First Principles. Uh, I feel very strongly about that. So I don't think it's just that we had five players missing because I know all the players that were playing. So as an example, Ian Madigan's a brilliant player. I worked with him for nearly 10 years since the first time I met him up the road here in Roth Mines as a 17-year-old kid. Madigan had all the ability in the world to perform very well that day, but he'd probably say himself that he was a little bit emotionally hijacked by the occasion. Which is interesting. I don't know, have you seen the Netflix series Breakpoint on the tennis players? I have. Good. I'm delighted you have because I'm fascinated by it in that you have all of these exceptionally talented athletes and individuals who seem to be emotionally fragile, who, even though they're playing a game which is just unbelievably good by the standards that we might be able to play, they get into a situation whereby if one or two shots go wrong or the momentum gets away from them, they seem to lose it. Now, I know this is for dramatic effect in the documentary series is highlighted, but it's very real, isn't it? The way that these elite athletes suffer doubt going into games and then during games. 
Is that your experience of dealing with players? In 2007, for whatever reason, I got a chance to go to America to spend time with the best mental toughness coach in the world. He'd worked with Agassi, he'd worked with Monica Seles, he'd worked with people of that level, and he'd worked with them for 50 years. At this stage, the man was maybe in his early 70s. His name was Jim Lear. And I got to go to his performance centre. We've tried to mimic that a little bit here in Ireland. And in his performance centre, the elite world-class tennis players were walking in and out and then you have the business ladies and gentlemen and then you'd have some of the people from the military and some politicians etc performance artists and all of them were coming in and out meeting and greeting and sitting in the canteen what we found out about the tennis players it was fascinating because there was two tennis courts out in front of the performance center and you'd watch him out on the court coaching the tennis players on the mental skills and the emotional fitness skills and again it's like repetitions of the basics so they're not only working on the strokes but working on the reaction to a bad shot work on their reaction to a miss, work on their reaction to losing a really important rally and so on. So watching him both on the tennis courts and then in the performance studios, really zoning in on those emotional fitness tips, tools and tricks. Because it strikes me that the reason the likes of Nadal, Djokovic, Federer and even Andy Murray have dominated over the last 10 or 15, 20 years and keep the young fellas away all the time is a mental resilience not just a will to win, but a will, an ability to stay focused. They're probably not able to play necessarily much better shots than a lot, but they're able to play the shots at the time when they're needed because their focus is so complete. I think mental toughness is a major, let's say, separating factor in sport and in all performance endeavours. And and that's what I think about all performance endeavours. So I don't separate sport versus a heart surgeon versus a person that is able to be an amazing actor. So going back to your point about is it a separating factor, it's definitely a separating factor, Matt. However, it's not the only separating factor. If we look at people that excel at the highest level of world sport over a 10-year period, they need to be incredibly physically fit. They need to have amazing technical skills. They need to be very astute tactically and strategically. They need to have the leadership skills. They need to have very consistent lifestyle, professional lifestyle. They need to be very mentally tough. They also need to be very strongly surrounded by great people, great coaches, fitness coaches, nutritional coaches, communication coaches, mental toughness coaches. And finally, they need to have been very lucky in their early life to have met some brilliant characters. So one of the neuroscientists we're now collaborating with, uh, the professor Ian Robertson, he speaks about the idea of a secret ladder. All the great performers early in their lives, from age 6 to 16, whether it's Rob Kearney or Katie Taylor, have that secret ladder. A good opponent to practice with, an unbelievable mother or father, a brilliant coach that has implemented very good coaching very early in their lives. They've got the fundamentals down. And then all those other things like developing the mental toughness, the emotional fitness, are built from, let's say, age 14 up to age 20. I think sometimes we forget about all those other pillars of performance. One of the reasons why I asked you to come and do the interview today when I saw that you had this new book, Commit to Lead Out, was because of the help you gave me with Jamie Heaslip's book. Because Jamie suggested to me when I was doing all the interviews with him, Uh, that I should meet with you and I did and you were good enough to give me at least an hour more in your office that you had in Donnybrook at the time and all of those things that you mentioned about what it needs to be to be a successful player I tried to use as building blocks with the interviews with Jamie and then in constructing the book going very there's so much to be a successful athlete a successful player 
you need to actually add so many different elements together, don't you? I think the Jimmy Heaslip example is the archetypal example of how you build a great athlete. As you've quoted very strongly in that book, and as you have very strongly evidence in that book, I think it's a phenomenal case study. If any young person wants to know how to unlock their true potential as an elite athlete, read Jimmy's book and then read it three times. Because I think that's what happens very often. People read the book and the father gives the book to the young rugby kid and he says, oh, I read it, daddy. Or mommy, you read it. But to really read it and reread it and then write notes all over it like I would have done as a young kid. Uh, I remember uh, Professor Aidan Moran, the great psychologist at UCD, he was one of the first sports psychologists in Ireland. I got his book as a young kid and I remember I destroyed the book with notes and then I read it and reread it and reread it and visualised it. Jamie's book for me is like a Bible of how you build the performance pillars in sport. All those pillars, and Jimmy was the exemplar of that. His rest and recovery protocols, as you know, Matt. Uh, this guy's attention to detail on video analysis. This guy's ability to use the phrase we always use in the coffee shop the night before the match, shake and bake. So the night before the match, this guy was absolutely locked and loaded. And we actually used that phrase. It was Jimmy's phrase, not my phrase. I'd say, Jimmy, how do you feel? We'd be sitting in coffee society. The night before the France game, when they won the Grand Slam in 2009, I'd say, Jimmy, how are you feeling? Shaking big man. I said, well, what does that mean? I'm ready to go. No more need for video analysis. No more need for mental preparation. No more need from coaching from Decky, whatever it is. I'm ready to shake and bake. And he was one of the best players, if not the best player I ever met, at recovering after a game. Going back to emotional fitness. No matter what happened, if Jimmy was man of the match, or if they were beaten in a big Grand Slam decider, Jimmy the next day would rock up and be ready to go. I've never seen a better example in my life than Jamie Heaslip at that. And I'm just thinking of that incredible try he scored that day in Croke Park against France, one of the best ever Irish tries. No, a team try, but he finished it with such a land and style. It, it was a land and style is exactly the phraseology. It was almost like the footwork of DJ Curry in front of Hill 16. I'll never forget it. And what I loved about that was, and maybe sometime Jamie will mention this on Magnified, he's talked about it a little bit in your book with him. But what I loved was... I don't know if Jimmy's ever really spoke about this. Jimmy had three or four moleskin diaries. And in all the stuff yes. we did, he always put into the moleskin. But for whatever reason, almost everything that's in that moleskin diary or those series of moleskin diaries, he executed it in the pitch. Now, if you read that in advance of some of those big test games, you'd say, there's no way this has ever come off. But he did it almost on a 10-year period. It's incredible. I've actually read all those diaries he gave them to me and I use them on the basis for the for the work as well. Just tell me a little bit more about your own Gaelic football career, though. though for those, there will be listeners and maybe particularly people in the business world who have become familiar will wonder, what sort of Gaelic footballer were you? <laughs> Not very good. Rubbish. You won in All-Ireland with our man in 2002. You don't be part of a team like that, which also, as you mentioned, had some some very, very strong characters, unless you're good. I would say not very talented in terms of, let's say, the finesse and the skills of Gaelic football, like the soloing skills, uh, the lovely ability to solo and weave around a defence like Morris Fitzgerald. I was really poor at that. No, hang on, very few people were as good as Morris <laughs> Fitzgerald in Paris. <laughs> or, or the David Clifford amazing finesse of skills. What I was brilliant at doing, and I'm a big believer in superpowers and strengths, I was able to keep a person out of a game. Peter Canavan was one of the best players of our generation. My job always was to take him out of the game, not physically dominating him, but outthink him, outmaneuver him, out anticipate him, 
out, you couldn't because he couldn't physically overwhelm Peter because the referee would give away a freeze and giving away a free he's going to score 10 out of 10 so you can't give any freeze away and he can't score I'm very proud to say that he never scored in any game against me league or championship so my job was always simple in that you must keep their best attacking player out of the game uh, and not only that, I was very proud that I would be marshalling and corralling the defence. Myself and my brother Justin would marshal and corral and communicate and, let's say, quarterback the defence. I'm fascinated that you say that about outthinking Peter because I know Peter very, very well, having worked with him for years on the radio show, but more particularly six years we worked on television together. I used to love sitting watching matches with Peter. I learned more from sitting talking to him as the game was going on. We used to line sit sort of in, high up in Crow Park if it was there in line with the quarter flag so we could sort of see over the it's sort of an unusual view of the pitch but you could see the players moving most, one of the most intelligent people I know and you felt you could outthink him I did and the reason for that was I was very well prepared by brilliant coaches we had a basketball coach at Armagh at the time called a guy called Darren uh, Darren O'Neill and he'd worked with basketball his whole life and he would come to me at half time and he would have an X and an O where I needed to really watch him for the second half and say Andy you have to watch him here 20 metres out left hand side this is his sweet spot just watch it so I had a great team around me, an old guy in the north of Ireland called Desmond Ryan, who's probably the best defensive coach I've ever come across, one of the best leaders I've ever come across in my life, and still is to this day. He's 84 years of age. Uh, he's had a profound impact on me as a leader and as a player. And we would drill it over and over again. This is Peter's strength on the left foot. This is what he does on the right foot. This is how he comes back inside. This is how he can do a pirouette. This is what he, he can actually, the only person I've ever seen in Gaelic football, he can solo the ball, roll, stand up and solo the ball. I've never seen anybody else doing it. Clifford's magnificent, but I've never seen any other player ever in my life doing that. So we'd have that incredibly well drilled. I used to go and watch him in challenge matches in Tyrone and sit in a, my friend's blacked out Jeep and sit and watch and take notes. Uh, can't have released the video. If, if Peter was listening in here, I, I would say, Peter, probably a bad idea. <laughs> Because it was called a Canavan Way. I was a young man when I got it. My father got me the video. I used to sit in the house and watch it over and over and over again, write notes. And my young brother, Patrick, who's now a fund manager out of uh, Chicago, running a boutique fund management company, uh, Patrick was a very skillful young fella. and He's much younger than us. I'd say, Patrick, you copy Peter Canavan. Come to me at full pace. And I'm going to try and take the ball off you. And I couldn't overpower him physically because he can't hurt your young brother. But you can try and tap that ball out of his hand, basketball tackle style. So... Over, I'd think him it would be an arrogant statement, but I was able to match him. It's terrific. I love the way you describe that. And I love the way the fact that 20 years ago, and it is over 20 years ago, that that level of preparation and detail was going into uh, the game. What age were you when you retired from Gaelic football? I was 34, 35. My last three years, I played zero minutes. I'm probably the only Gaelic footballer in history that was on a squad and never got any minutes, league, championship or mechanic cup. It's a very humbling experience coming back from Armagh uh, three nights a week on your own in the car, wondering what the hell's going on. But it was a big learning for me. Why, was, did you, why did you do that if you weren't getting picked? I love training. I love training. I love the dressing room I love competing I love being on the B team and trying to get the B team to beat the A team I love being on the B team and trying to rally the troops of the B team and try and make sure we win the match at training why else did I keep going I wanted to prove that I could still get back in I actually for some reason now I keep dreaming that I've been called back in I keep waking up in the middle of the night dreaming that 
uh, end it, right, you're in this Sunday, and me going, but I'm not sharp enough, I haven't done my footwork, I haven't got my skills fine tuned, so it still comes back into my head. Why did I go back? A lot of my friends said, I remember vividly being across McLean, our man were playing against, I think, Galway or Donegal in a league match, and I remember warming up, I'd always warm up and run past the coach and almost hit him a shot on my shoulder to get him to be aware that I was still on the bench. <laughs> And I was running past his shoulder, and I remember vividly he was standing this time stretching. I might have had uh, a, a pair of those skins on. And behind the fence, Tony McIntyre was in crossbow, and he had finished and retired at the stage. He says, Enda, what are you at? I said, Look around and seen Tony Mark looking in the fence at me. I said, What, what are you at? What are you at? And two, two years, no game time, would you stop fooling yourself? It's time to go, man. And he, of course, he was right. I should have went a lot earlier. There's a story in the book that I really took to it as well that I'm sure people are listening in to you now and saying, well, he's well able to talk, he's well able to communicate. But you tell a story about how after a Sigerson match, wasn't it, you were asked for interview and the team wouldn't allow you to go out for the interview because they thought that you, well, you weren't, you wouldn't be understood. I still need to improve my communication skill. To be honest, even this morning, I'd be working on my vocal warm-ups, uh, even this morning in the gym, getting myself physically, mentally, emotionally ready for this interview. I still work very hard at it. And I'm very proud to say that it's not natural for me to communicate coherently or concisely. I still always have to work at it. When you're from South Armagh and you're surrounded by a lot of characters that speak really fast, uh, let's say, imagine the iconic Joey Dunlop, he spoke nearly the speed of the motorbike that he raced on. Uh, so uh, as a young boy, as a young man, I spoke far too fast and I had that very strong South Armagh accent. So when I went to Queen's to mix with all those dirty fellas and maybe Galway fellas and Clare fellas and so on, they'd be laughing and joking and saying, we can't have this man communicating. And after I was a man in the match in a Sigerson game against UCD, I remember Colin O'Rourke being on the sideline in this particular game and the TV cameras were looking for an interview by me and maybe the radio uh, guys and so on, the news talk guys, whatever it was, Today FM, ladies and gentlemen, and they said, "Can we have Enda McNulty?" And I could hear the guys saying, "No, no, you, you couldn't have Enda. No way. You, you sure? Yeah, we want Enda. He's the man of the match. No, no, we're not going to give you Enda. He can't communicate well. We're going to give you a person X, Y, or Z." Were you hurt by that? Yes, of course I was hurt, but I'd be pretty good. And maybe Irish men were pretty good at feeling the hurt and saying nothing about it and that open up about it and I never really said it to anybody maybe even this is the first time I've said it you know to public uh, but I used the hurt I used the hurt to drive my improvement to go and get coaching I was listening today on this magnified podcast this morning in the gym to your amazing interview by Terry Prone talking about herself and her husband Tom Savage so whenever I felt that hurt I had in the back of my head the realisation that I must significantly improve my communication and today I still have that realisation and uh, ambition uh, and by total chance I was asked to do some coaching free of charge in Cooley Kickhams 
And a guy called Gary Thornton was coaching the Coolie Kickham's minor team. And he asked me to do a few sessions. And I says, I'm delighted. And by total chance, one of the guys in that minor session was David Carney. We were doing high kicking and high catching. I remember watching this young fella going, wow, look at the catching skills of this young fella. And I said to Gary, Gary, by any chance he was doing work in the business world, do you know any amazing communications coaches? He said, yeah, of course. Sure, my buddy's Tom Savage. He's my deterry prone. He's the man. He called Tom Savage that night. Uh, rearranged the meeting that week. Tom brought me to Rowley's in Ballsbridge. I never forget going, how can Tom Savage afford to bring me to Rowley's? I went to Rowley's in Ballsbridge and Tom sat me for two and a half hours and he just he told me the stories about Cooley and about Turry and the early days in the priesthood and playing football at Queen's University. And I remember going, wow, there's another leader that I can look up to. There's another leader I can look up to, and also there's another person who can teach me to communicate. I met him that week at the then Car Communications, and he interviewed me for an hour and a half talking about my journey. And he said nothing. And I thought I was doing well. And he listened, and he listened, and he listened. As you would know, I know we've done a lot of work with Terry Prone back in the day, Matt. And at the end of it, he said, shut down the microphone, shut down the video. He was obviously videoing it and putting on mic. And he said, so what? And I went, I told him the story about South Armagh, I told him the story about uh, Desi Ryan, I told him the story about my mother, my father, Seamus Mallon, John Hume, um, my early days in the confectionery factory making sweets. And he said, yeah, so what? And I said, yeah, but, you know, I want the audience to be inspired by this. So what? And I went, I was completely flummoxed by this. I had no clue what he meant. He says, Enda, will you come back to me next week? And when you go and figure out the so what? And it was probably the best coaching I ever got in my life. If I didn't know the so what for the audience, well, then why was I communicating? And then over about a 10-year period, me and Tom used to deliver sessions in New York City, for example, when the shit hit the fan in the great, uh, obviously, economic downturn of... 07, 08, me and Tom were flew into New York on behalf of AAB to work with people who had been let go out of the bank. And it was one hell of a masterclass on how to communicate, how to train, and how to inspire an audience that are losing their jobs in the bank. Tom was just incredible. Because Tom, who I would have been extremely fond of as well, had terrific empathy. And empathy is one of the big themes of your book as well, how important it is for leadership to have genuine empathy. I think a lot of people fake empathy. Yeah. And I think you can tell immediately. And I think the person's authenticity of empathy is everything. And again, I have to thank my mother for that. My mother's empathy would be far better than my father's empathy. I'm sure my dad listening would agree with that. Uh, but also an old lady used to look after us when we were kids. I, I would say I really reared myself. My mother would probably be open and honest about that as well. She had five children. Uh, sorry, she had six children. My young brother Patrick came much later. But interestingly, she was so busy at that stage. She was a social entrepreneur, head of an English department. She was very involved with the peace process. So she was a very busy woman, running the whole house, running the community, running the school, running uh, the commercial for the local drama festival and so on. So we raided ourselves. But there was an old lady that would looked after us. I would have went to her house after school every day, Mrs. Dooley. Mrs. Dooley was maybe four minutes walk away and she had lovely empathy, lovely compassion. So I learned compassion, probably, and empathy from that old lady, God bless her. What did you do in Queen's? What subject? Psychology. Worst student, probably, in the history of Queen's campus. Ah, yeah, but it clearly stood to you. 
It stood me, and again, there was good fortune. I think we all need to be aware of the good fortune early in our lives. My dad said to me before I went to Queen's, because he went through this when he was at Queen's. He studied psychology and arts as well. And he said, and the number one piece of advice I'm going to give you before you go to Queen's, get somebody you trust in the department that if and when the shit hits the fan, he or she is there for you. I was totally fortunate that in my first few weeks at Queen's on the Sigerson team, Desi Ryan had the vision and foresight to bring in a performance psychologist. His name was John Kramer. Brilliant guy. He'd played rugby. Uh, he was on the pitch that day and I said, who is that gentleman over there with the beard? And they said, oh, this is a sports psychologist. And the next day I went to one of the classes at Queen's. Didn't go to too many classes, but one of the classes I did go to was the sports psychology class. And who was the different? Only John Kramer. John Kramer asked the question in front of 250 psychology uh, students in our class. Uh, some of you work in clinical psychology. Some of you work in children's psychology. Some of you might work in business psychology. Some of you work in applied. I put my hand up. And he says, what, what, is, is everything okay? I says, yeah, that's me. And he says, what, what do you mean? I says, that's where I'm going to be, in the applied side, in making it relevant, in the practical side, in bringing this into people's lives. And I remember literally standing up and hand up in the air saying, that's me. I think today, of those 250 students in the class who were all far more intelligent than me, knew far more about psychological theory than me, but I've been very fortunate to apply that, let's say, in a practical laboratory that is on the pitch, in the boardroom, on the Riverdance stage, or perhaps for the surgeon of young baby's eyes. I want to, I do want to do a little bit more on sport before we get to business. Um, talk to me about the work that you do on a one-to-one basis, because I know that since Joe Smith left the Irish setup, you're not involved, and you'd been with Joe from Leinster through to Ireland, but I think you still do some work with some of the players on a private basis. Yeah, some of the players, because of a relationship built over 10 years, uh, friendship, coaching relationship, would still to this day come and seek guidance, coaching, support, help. And we do that in a very holistic manner. So, for example, some of the guys might say, I've got a relationship with this global company. I want to discuss it. I want to make sure that I'm consolidating the relationship. Some of the players might say, I'm a little bit concerned by some of the stuff that's going on in the media at this time. Some of the players might say, my form have been a little bit up and down. Can we do a little bit of work on that? Some of the players might say, I've got a family member that I want you to meet and, uh, and give me some support with that family member who maybe at this stage their confidence is low. Some of the players might say, I'm thinking about life after rugby. So I'm very proud that people like Jamie, Gordon Darcy, who I met in the last week, and Brian O'Driscoll, they're probably really good exemplars of getting ready for life after rugby before the ball is over. So because the relationship you'd have with them during their playing days, a lot of them will come to you after their playing days and say, now I'm going into this new world of I'm in a global tech company or perhaps I'm setting my own company up or perhaps I'm setting up a production company whatever it is so you still work with some of the individual players that are still playing to this day and a lot of the players who are ex-players that you formed a relationship with and they seek advice or counsel or coaching or mentoring So you're a sounding board a lot of the time are you? I wouldn't be arrogant to call it a sounding board in some cases I'm a friend some cases I'd be a mentor, different hats. But it's interesting that, and this comes back to something I mentioned earlier, that you have all of these highly successful people who are uncertain or unsure, perhaps. There's lots of time in my life that I've been uncertain. Lots of time in my life that I'm unsure. We mentioned emotional fitness earlier on and vulnerability. Lots of time in my life that I've been uh, vulnerable and emotionally unsure. But I know how to handle that. 
So all of our listeners in to the Magnified podcast can relate to being vulnerable, unsure, fragile. What we love to do is give them the tools that when they're in that state to be able to navigate their way out of it. The book starts with purpose. And I was very taken by this because one of the things that's really good about the book is the short examples you give either of people that you've actually worked with or the stories of people who you've read about who are long dead. I mean, you're for obviously Shackleton, Ernest Shackleton, the explorer, is somebody that you seem to be, well, I wouldn't say obsessed with, but you certainly seem inspired by it and you've, by, and you've read an enormous amount about him, clearly. Tell us about Shackleton for those who are not familiar with him. I guess I'm intrigued about Shackleton. Armagh were beat by Tyrone in the All-Ireland final in 2003. I was as close to clinical depression, I'd say, as any stage of my life. We put so much into it. Uh, we underperformed in the final. And for whatever reason, a few weeks after the final, I had to, I said to myself, get up out of your bed now. It's time to get back on track again. And in the Collins barracks, there was a Shackleton exhibition. Brilliant. And some of the small artifacts of the Shackleton time in the Antarctic. So I went in there and I read a lot about Shackleton. There was a a movie about Shackleton in there in the Collins barracks. There was nobody there that day for whatever reason. Nobody in the museum. I had the museum to myself. And I spent about four hours in the museum. And I'll be honest, I cried like a little baby. And the reason I cried and I let all that emotional, let's say, hurt and vulnerability out was that... I was thinking that if this guy got through this incredible feat of a ship being crushed in the middle of the ice in the Antarctic and he had to figure a way to navigate with his team back uh, to captivity, I was thinking to myself, well, I need to wake the hell up. I need to get up off my backside and go and make myself more resilient and go and stop feeling sorry for myself or ourselves in the Armagh change room. I need to become a better person. I need to become a better leader and I need to become, let's say, tougher. Why am I intrigued about Shackleton? I'm intrigued about Shackleton's strengths and also the things that he got wrong. So we compare Shackleton and Amundsman. Some of Shackleton's techniques were way behind Amundsman, who was much more efficient. He was much more thinking about the snowshoes, where Shackleton in the early days with Scott was thinking about horses and ponies. Whereas Amundsman, of course, the Norwegian, was a were, well, were snowshoes. You're on top of the snow, where Shackleton was still plodding through the snow on the ice, and even the great Tom Crean. So Shackleton arguably is one of Ireland's greatest ever leaders. Uh, arguably lead, uh, led the greatest expedition in Irish history of leadership when that ship, the Endurance, was crushed in the middle of the ice to figure out how to get all those men back home safe to Scotland, England, Wales, and of course to Ireland. Arguably the greatest feat. And the way he did that with inspirational simplicity. No big dramatic speeches, some very tokenistic, uh, let's say, symbols. So, as an example, he threw his money onto the top of the ice and said, we won't need money anymore. Gold sovereigns. Gold sovereigns. Even uh, lovely, even nicer language. What else did he do? He realised that the ukulele was critical to allow the people to play the musical instrument to keep their morale and the spirits. He talked about mental medicine that music would lift the spirits and the mental state of his troops. He also knew that in terms of the toxicity of some of those brilliant adventurers, he knew to deal with it in small doses. In lots of boardrooms, and I dealt with one yesterday of a global company, they said there's toxicity in the global boardroom. Shackleton knew to meet those fellas one-on-ones and have the conversation and say, this is not acceptable. A couple of things that I remember very much from what you have in the book, which really stood out for me, 
his refusal to allow cliques to form so that he used to move people into different tents around the place so that people wouldn't start getting into little groups. And then there's an extraordinary story that when they were near the end of their journey to get to safety, when they could see their destination, he decided they weren't going there because the ice was too thin and he was afraid it would collapse under them and that they would drown. And the men all because at this stage they were so bought into and committed to his leadership, agreed with him. Well, I love the way you mentioned the cliques. Let's be honest, all of our listeners can relate to the fact that either in a family, in a community organisation, in a charity organisation, in a business, in a sports team, in a radio station, there's cliques. The great leaders are aware of those cliques and they're able to manage those and try and get moving towards collaboration, a sense of unity of purpose. Shackleton found a way around the cliques to create that unity of purpose, that sense of direction that great leaders provide. When you talk about purpose, there are stories in the book that I of people I didn't know. For example, Bernard or sorry, Brendan McGurkin. Tell us about the purpose of his business, because I'd say environmentalists, for example, would love this one. There's a company called CDE Global in the North. Benny McGurgan was, uh, let's say, brought in when they're about a, a million and a half turnover. I think he grew it to a hundred million turnover in his time, his tenure as CEO. Phenomenal growth. But one of the parts of the purpose, a unity of purpose, was around, let's say, the environment and the impact on the environment and getting everybody in the organization aligned behind that, let's say, sense of a true purpose or a true north purpose. So it's a brilliant example of the everyday leader not just the star, let's say, against the All Blacks, the Rory Best, but what about the everyday leader that everybody can relate to? Aren't we all a leader in our own homes or maybe with the opportunity to be? In our own businesses, in our own communities. So it's a brilliant example of everyday leadership. But I was also intrigued by the fact that he dealt with the amount of waste that is created with sand. So we actually mine, we think of all the things that we mine that we take out of the earth. I had never thought of sand as been something that is actually that you actually need to repurpose. And that's how the business actually developed. Well, I hope that someday I'm lucky enough to be in the near future a father. We're not lucky enough to have kids yet, but please God, we'll be lucky in the near future. And for whatever reason, I'm very passionate about all of our duty around the environment and the planet. The Benny McGurgan story gives a good insight to that, that even in a global company in a scaling or hyper growth mode, the need to think about the impact on the environment, is that not all of our duty as leaders at this stage? How did you move from being as insisting sports stars to working in business, to work with great corporate entities? Podrigo Kiedja, the great Ur, uh, Ur Iron CEO, I met him way back in the day, one of my first business mentors. Uh, he said to me, Andy, you need to reinvent yourself every two years. I would say now it's every year. So we had to reinvent ourselves during COVID because we'd always delivered all of our training and coaching in person and we had to pivot very quickly. As a footballer, I had to realise you had to reinvent yourself every two years because there's going to be a bigger, faster, stronger player. There's going to be another David Clifford coming on the scene. Uh, 
in my days with Leinster, in the early days under Michael Cheka, we realised that we had to reinvent our message at least every season. New theme was created every season. For example, one of the seasons it was around uh, the Tour de France. Another one of the seasons the theme was around climbing Everest, uh, stage one, stage two of Everest. So me and Michael... So what's the importance of that? Is that keeping the message fresh and keeping people interested? Keep it fresh because the players, even the best players in the world, even the most committed players in the world, they forget about it. And I tell you why this came into my head. I was meeting a marketing genius that I worked with Steve Jobs back in the day in New York City through a really good friend of mine. And he says, Enda, it's okay. Is it okay to meet this guy? He's going to have a few whiskeys on board. I said, I don't care if he's two bottles of whiskey. I want to meet him. Irish guy by the name of Coughlin. Uh, and he said to me, why do you think Apple changed their advertising at least four times a year? And again, if you think about the most amazing advertising the world is created by Apple, the think different advert this gentleman had worked on. And I says, I don't know. He says, well, you need to start to think about that if you're going to really make it big in sport or business and so on. And he said, because people forget the message. The impact of the message wanes. The, let's say, magnification of the message wanes. So you need to keep your message fresh. So we realised in Leinster in the early days that we need to change the theme, not only at that season, we actually change the theme per game. So for every game, there's a different theme. It could be one of the games that could have been Touch the White Fence was a particular thing we spoke about. Going back to that coach that I met working with elite tennis players in Florida. And Touch the White Fence basically was a story around the athletes that are told to go to the White Fence and touch it and come the whole way back and find a way to touch it and come the whole way back are the best athletes. The other athletes would go, well, there was a lot of traps like it was a long way to go I had to climb over those trees there were snakes out there there was wild boars in the middle of the woods like you don't expect me to go around that the best athletes are the best mentally tough performers they will figure a way around the wild boars over the traps on top of the snakes to go and touch the white fence so we knew to keep the theme very fresh uh, and very novel very memorable and very interesting but then how do you apply that in a business setting? Same thing. So CEOs have to keep their message in the boardroom fresh. They have to keep it memorable for, if they're not keeping it fresh and memorable and interesting and motivating, how would the board be inspired about it? Never mind the C-suite, never mind the middle management, never mind the lady that's getting paid minimum wage on the shop floor. So the CEO must be the chief communication officer. The CEO must come up with a compelling vision they must have an incredible unity of purpose. They must make sure they're making that memorable and easy to understand. Uh, Dennis O'Brien's a lovely phrase that he uses about Sesame Street simple. That message has to be Sesame Street simple. You, well, last time I met you was in your offices down in Donnybrook, which are now demolished because there is a new uh, development going in there. Where are you now? We're in Park West. We moved into, I call it the Bronx of Dublin. I love it. A uh, lot of business. You're driving past business all day, every day. Every business from a timber yard through to some of the biggest companies in the world, like Diageo only up the road. Uh, we're in Park West. Love it. Love the matter-of-fact, everyday business graft. And you set up sort of studios there for doing coaching online, is it? Yeah, so we're doing, let's say Amazon's an example. If we're working with an Amazon team across EMEA and they've got 150 leaders that we're bringing through a leadership and management training program, uh, they'll want us to have, again, keep the message fresh. So it might go from studio, uh, we call it the seismic studio, and we're talking about, let's say, everyday leadership. Studio B might go into talking about management. Studio C, we might talk about energy management and well-being. And Studio D might be doing a session 
on, let's say, giving back in society. So it's that multi-purpose, agile, flexible approach. It's like meeting you in today FM, that brilliant studio. I think the leaders of this generation, we have to be more flexible, agile. Is it not better to meet people face to face, particularly when you're doing the type of work that you do with them? And I know everyone has had to change because of COVID or everyone pivoted to use the word. But does it not actually know that COVID is something that we live with? Is it not better to get back to the face-to-face communication rather than depending on technology? I think when I was working on Papua New Guinea, it took me two and a half days to get to Papua New Guinea. I loved it. It was one of the biggest transformational things that happened in my life. I can't go to Papua New Guinea every week. If I do, I'll be divorced. I'll run myself into the ground. So I think it's, it's not either or. The brilliance with technology is we can be very savvy with how we use it. So we love in our training and coaching and advisory uh, business to have a medley of all the above. If you're meeting a global CEO, sit down with him, first of all, really get to know him or her. Uh, get out on the bike with them. So during lockdown, I was, believe it or not, cycling up and down this road mat here in Ruth Mines uh, with on my bike and with another bike in my other hand, knocking on the door of a CEO to bring him out on the bike. Was it slightly against the rules? Possibly was. The CEO was saying, I haven't got a bike. I said, don't worry, I'll bring one with me. <laughs> because if we didn't knock on their doors, like Michael Cullen is the CEO of Investec, he lives... 90 seconds away if if we didn't get out knocking on doors we'd have no business so that time you could meet them on zoom and i met a lot of ceos during that stage on zoom but i also met a lot on the bike and uh, me and michael were cycling down on near sandy mount and for whatever reason both of us fell over on the bikes fell over onto the grass and we were laughing and giggling like two little kids so i think a bit of both matt not just meeting them virtually not just meeting them for a cup of coffee keeping it fresh Get out on the bike with them, go for a walk with them, get into their environment, see what's happening in their world. To use the Seamus Mallon phraseology, feel and hear the gravel in the shoes as you're walking up those paths. It was in your previous book, and it is touched upon in this book as well, that to be mentally fit, you also believe in being physically fit and having a degree of discipline in relation to how you feed yourself, how you exercise yourself. I mean, do you always manage to live up to that yourself? Well, I know I used to bump into you lots in David Lloyd back in the day in, in the gym. That's a core philosophy of mine and of McNulty. And the reason for that is, again, fortunate in my early life, at the Gale talked in Donegal when the other fellas were going drinking or smoking, for whatever reasons, this came into my head and they go running. And at, even at 14, I was playing senior football and I wanted to be fit and strong enough and powerful enough to play with the senior footballers. My dad was coaching the senior team and he allowed me to play a little bit even at 14 years of age. So since 14 years of age to the present day, I'd say I've been unbelievably blessed to have trained every week since, other than being very sick or after a bad accident or bad injury. Uh, Am I absolutely sure that I'd advocate for every listener to look after their physical well-being as connection to their mental, emotional and spiritual well-being? I say that with absolute sureness, I say with absolute, absolute authenticity and I say with absolute acknowledgement of the impact it can have on your life. And also what you do emphasise in this book as well, which I thought was important, is that physiologically everybody is different. So there is no one size fits all treatment for people as to how they look after themselves physically. So does the same actually apply then? to mentally and to all the aspects of leadership that of the things that are in this book you maybe need to tweak things to suit 
each individual's personality. That's probably the biggest lesson I had working with Leinster in Ireland was if I have the same approach to Johnny Sexton as I have to Paul O'Connell, as I have to Sean O'Brien, Jimmy Heaslip, Luke Fitzgerald, Gordon Darcy, Josh van der Flaer, Robbie Henshaw, if I have the same approach with all of those players, every single one of them would have said to me, and I'm never going to see you again. So it has to be individually customised to their personality, to their likes or dislikes, uh, to their style, to some of those players, for example, love to prepare early in the week, some love to back end that. Uh, very individually customised. Some of the players like to the night before a match, the All Blacks in Chicago, Rob Kearney, can vividly remember sitting down for a quiet cup of tea at 8 or 9 o'clock at night. Rob speaks about this in his book, so I'm not breaking any etiquette. Uh, Rob said to me, I just need, if the spark comes, I think I'll, it'll absolutely happen for me, I'll light up. If, if one big thing happens, or I've got one good game and uh, I think it'll just happen for me and I'll take off. I said, hold on a second, Rob. You have to bring the spark. Let's be very clear about it. In this match tomorrow, you are going to have to bring the spark to the game and everything will look after itself. So come back to your emotional and mental fitness. That has to be conditioned and prepared as consistently as the physical fitness with the same regimen, with the same programming, with the same coaching, with the same repetitions as us going to the gym to do reps with, let's say, a weight or on the treadmill or on push-ups or whatever it is. The book is a terrific read. What would you hope that people will get out of it? What's your? Why did you write it? Our first book, Commit, they were really thankful, became a bestseller in non-fiction. An old lady from La Slay, my community at home, who spent her whole life as a nun, and worked somewhere like Vietnam looking after young children in orphanages and so on. She was sent the book by one of her family, the Hanaway family in the Slay, and she got it away over in Vietnam. She read the book and inspired her to write little children's stories in their native tongue uh, that nobody ever had bothered to write down. And it was inspiring her to commit to write down the things to make an impact on people's lives. Why to write the book? Very simple. To inspire people to unlock the true leadership potential in life. Is this, in this era, not the time that we need better leaders? If we look at what's going on in Ukraine and we're sponsoring a young Ukrainian kid, he was with us at Christmas time. He took the light out of your eye. Is this not the time that we need to inspire your young children, please God, my young children with better leaders? Is this not the time that Ireland Inc. needs to stand up and realise that possibly our greatest opportunity is our leadership export? Is this not the time that we need to forge leaders at school, not just those that know about technology or mathematics or Irish at school? We wrote the book to inspire a generation of leaders. Years ago, when I was editor of the Sunday Tribune, I had a section editor, and we used to talk at times about the output of our journalists in that particular section and what we were getting. And he had a theory and a belief that people when they get to a certain stage in life, and this can even be as young men and women rather than middle-aged or older, that they're pretty fixed in their ways, that they have particular attitudes and they have particular ways of doing things, and that it's very difficult to get them to change. They've sort of become fixed as personalities. And his view was that you could only maybe get incremental change out of them and that... To get that, you had to persuade them to do it, which might be very difficult to do. Is that too limiting an attitude? Because some of the people I've said that to have disagreed fundamentally with that and said that you can 
get people to change significantly. What do you think? I think I magnified you interviewed Terry Prone and you spoke about a similar context in communication. Can a great communicator really adapt and evolve? I fundamentally believe that even at 45, 55, 65, 75, 85, that we can fundamentally change. And I've seen lots of evidence of that. I give a few examples. Brian Kahn, the ex-Taoiseach, I used to go and sit in his hospital bed uh, with him in Donnybrook when he was in hospital at the start of lockdown. Uh, it was in Hellman Education. Uh, because I could walk down at lunchtime and meet him at lunchtime and we would sit and have a conversation about what happened in 08, 09. A hell of, a hell of an education. I have to say I have a lot of uh, time for that man's integrity. Watching him go through a stroke and watching him rehabilitate gives me all the evidence in the world that of course you can change if you've got the drive and the motivation to change. There's a huge lot of research by a, a gentleman called Professor Murzenth, one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, who by total chance is a friend with the neuroscientist that I know, Professor Ian Robertson. And they've conclusively proved that even after stroke, that even after a certain, let's say, region of the brain shuts down, that we can rewire, rewire the brain that the brain can learn new networks and learn a way to speak again and grow new neural networks across the brain to speak again or walk again or draw again or sing again. So we know that, let's say, the hardware is there to enable change. We know the software is there as well, the neural networks, the firing of the synapses and so on. We also know loads of case studies of people fundamentally changing in life. But I think it's what's the motivation for the change? Uh, what's the inspiration for the change? I think if, if people have, again, a strong enough purpose and a strong enough raison d'etre, they'll figure a way to change. And we are going to have to all change if we want to thrive in life. And is that what life's about? So either we figure a way to change and keep growing and progressing. I think progress is directly linked to your motivation in life. So I love the continuous change and progress and development because wouldn't it be very boring if I'm the same person at the end of 2023 as I was when I left the RMA squad, you know, 10 years ago? What a boring life it would be for me. But I can't choose for your listeners. I think they'll have to choose themselves. Enda McNulty, it has been terrific having you as a guest on Magnified. And the book, which I am enjoying so much, is called Commit to Lead, Unlock Your True Leadership Potential. Enda, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me at your kitchen table. And that was Enda McNulty. If you enjoyed him, I think you'll enjoy many of our other guests that we've had on the Magnified series to date. Go check out any podcasts that you've missed. And if you've enjoyed this, subscribe at either Go Loud, Spotify or Apple to make sure each new episode drops for you each week. So until the next time, from me, Matt Cooper, thank you for listening.